Thank you, Brian. So I know some of you may be wondering, where is Pastor P? He's at his thin place. He's in Yosemite with all of his family. His son, his daughter, their significant others, and his sister and her husband came to visit. So that's where Pastor Pete is today. He's in his thin place. He's grateful that we're able to do church without him here. That shows what a healthy church we are. And now those of you, many of you know Waco, so I want to bring her up and introduce you to her. Um, many of you know her. She's been here a lot, which is awesome. And I'll let her share with you a little bit about her background. Thank you for joining us, Waco. Thank you very much. Good morning, Crosswalkers. I'm especially pleased to see so many of you here on a holiday weekend and on Bottle Rock weekend, so thank you. Um, so my name is Waco Shannon Hickey, and um, I uh, am in my third career. My first career was as a journalist. My second was as a college professor teaching religious studies. And my third, and my current one, is as a hospice chaplain here uh, in the Napa Valley. And it is always a great pleasure to be with you anytime, but it's a special honor to be here on Pentecost, which is the birthday of the Christian church. I love this banner. I think that is just a spectacular banner. Um, could we cue up the first slide? So, um, uh, Pastor Pete asked me to talk this morning about what the theologian Marcus Borg calls thin places in uh, this book, The Heart of Christianity. Uh, chapter 8 uh, deals with the topic of thin places. And these are experiences that we can have when the seeming boundary between ordinary reality and spiritual reality seems to fall away and we have a profound sense of the divine right where we are. Such experiences can be life-changing. At the very least, Borg says, they are heart-opening. They leave us feeling wonder and awe. Um, the Bible tells many stories about thin places. I think this banner on the other side here is an example of another one. Is this Jesus in the wilderness after his baptism and before his public ministry? Yeah, that was another thin place. So one major message of the Bible as a whole is that God acts in history, sometimes in very dramatic ways. And three stories about thin places are particularly relevant to the Feast of Pentecost. So okay, I'm going to put my uh, professor hat on here for a minute. I used to get to wear this twice a year. Um, at convocation and commencement, but since I moved back to Napa, I haven't been able to wear it. So uh, here you go. Um, <clears throat> so the first story uh, of a thin place is that of Moses leading the Israelites out of slavery with God's help. In Jewish communities, this, uh, <clears throat> this story is recounted at Passover, which in ancient Israel was also the spring harvest festival. The second story was Moses receiving the Torah from God on Mount Sinai after the exodus from Egypt, and that celebrated at Shavuot, the summer harvest festival. The fall harvest is Sukkot. All three festivals included pilgrimages to Jerusalem so people could offer the first and best fruits of the harvest 
to, the, to God at the temple in Jerusalem. The third story is that of the Christian Pentecost, which I will get to in a moment. Shavuot, the summer harvest, falls 50 days after the second night of Passover. The seven weeks between Passover and Shavuot is called the Omer. It commemorates the period when the Israelites uh, are wandering in the wilderness after escaping slavery uh, before God helps them to conquer the Promised Land. The Omer is a time of reflection and partial mourning, so strictly observant Jews may fast, avoid parties, refrain from cutting their hair during this period, uh, and these, the days of the Omer are literally counted during morning prayer. The 50th day, Shavuot, celebrates Moses' receiving the uh, Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and in synagogues on Shavuot, Jewish communities read the book of Ruth, which is uh, a story about chesed, the loyalty and faithfulness that arise out of commitment to relationships. During Sukkot, Jews create temporary dwellings uh, to remember how God provided for the people in the wilderness. In the Christian calendar, Easter is celebrated on the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. Pentecost falls 50 days after Easter. This year, Pentecost, uh, Passover and Easter coincided, and so Shavuot and Pentecost do as well. Shavuot was observed from Thursday night until yesterday night, uh, and uh, yeah, from Thursday to yesterday. The word Pentecost comes from a Greek word meaning 50th. Um, <clears throat> so Greek was a common language in the ancient Israelite world and uh, in ancient Mediterranean world, and Jews were using a Greek translation of their scriptures called the Septuagint. Did you get all that? There will be a quiz at the end of the hour. No, there won't. So in the Christian story of the Pentecost, which I will read shortly, the apostles are in Jerusalem for Shavuot among thousands of pilgrims, pilgrims who are there for the harvest festival. That's the setting of the story, which is told in the Acts of the Apostles. You probably know that Acts is the second of a two-volume work, the first of which is the Gospel of Luke. Okay, so let's get into the story. I'm using the translation from the Message Bible uh, because Pete often uses that version. So in the first chapter of Acts, Jesus has ascended to heaven, promising to spend, send the Holy Spirit, and the disciples have chosen Matthias to replace Judas as one of the 12 apostles. So, Acts 2. When the Feast of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Without warning, there was a sound like a strong wind, gale force. No one could tell, no one could tell where it came from. It filled the whole building. Then, like wildfire, the Holy Spirit sp spread through their ranks and they started speaking in a number of languages as the Spirit prompted them. There were many Jews staying in Jerusalem just then, devout pilgrims from all over the world. When they heard the sound, they came on the run. Then when they heard, one after the other, their own mother tongues being spoken, they were blown away. They couldn't for the life of them figure out what's going on. They kept saying, Aren't these all Galileans? How come they're, we're hearing them talk in our various mother tongues? Parthians, 
Medes and Elamites, visitors from Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, immigrants from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, even Cretans and Arabs. They're speaking our languages describing God's mighty works. Their heads were spinning. They couldn't make head or tail of any of it. They talked back and forth, confused. What's going on here? Others joked, they're drunk on cheap wine. That's when Peter stood up and backed by the other 11, spoke out with bold urgency. Fellow Jews, all of you who are visiting Jerusalem, listen carefully and get this story straight. These people aren't drunk as some of you suspect. They haven't had time to get drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. Peter apparently had not been to Bottle Rock. <laughs> that is what the prophet Joel announced would happen. <clears throat> in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on every kind of people. Your sons will prophesy, also your daughters. Your young men will see visions. Your old men dream dreams. When the time comes, I'll pour out my spirit on those who serve me, men and women both, and everyone on the spectrum in between. And they'll prophesy. I'll set wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billowing smoke, the sun turning black and the moon blood red before the day of the Lord arrives, the day of tremendous, the day tremendous and marvelous, and whoever calls out for help to me, God, will be saved. Now, to those of us who have lived in Napa for a few years, uh, we know exactly how terrifying fire and billowing smoke can be. We've seen the sun and the moon and the whole sky stained red. This is scary, apocalyptic imagery. However, the prophets of ancient Israel uh, were the conscience of the king and of the nation. Their role was really not to scare people about predicting future events, but to urge people to be faithful to their God and to practice social justice. So the tremendous and marvelous day of the Lord means the day when poverty, sickness, oppression, and injustice are no more, as the text makes clear a little later. So Peter goes on. Fellow Israelites, listen carefully to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man thoroughly accredited by God to you, the miracles and wonders and signs that God did through him are common knowledge. This Jesus, following the deliberate and well thought out plan of God, was betrayed by men who took the law into their own hands and was handed over to you. And you pinned him on a cross and killed him. Now, let's be very clear here. Jews did not kill Jesus. Roman soldiers killed Jesus. And the false idea that Jews killed Jesus has fueled Christian anti-Semitism since the days of St. Helena, for whom the city and mountain north of here are named. Nevertheless, one theme of Luke is that Jesus was unjustly rejected by his own people. Peter goes on, but God untied the death ropes and raised him up. Death was no match for him. David said it all, I saw God before me for all time. Nothing can shake me, he's right by my side. I'm glad from the inside out, ecstatic. 
I've pitched my tent in the land of hope. I know you'll never dump me in Hades. I'll never even smell the stench of death. You've got my feet on the life path with your face shining sun joy all around. I'm going to skip over a few verses that make essentially the same point. Cut to the quick, those who are listening asked Peter and the other apostles, brothers, brothers, so now what do we do? Peter said, change your life. Turn to God and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so your sins are forgiven. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is targeted to you and your children, but also to all who are far away, whomever, in fact, our Master God invites. He went on in this vein for a long time, urging them over and over, get out while you can. Get out of this sick and stupid culture. That day, about 3,000 took him at his word, were baptized, and were signed up. They committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the life together, the common meal, and the prayers. Everyone around was in awe, all those wonders and signs done through the apostles. All the believers lived in a wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owned and pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. This is the great and magnificent day of the Lord. They followed a daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home. Every meal, a celebration, exuberant and joyful as they praised God. People in general liked what they saw. Every day their number grew as God added those who were saved. As the book of Acts goes on to describe the growth and spread of the early Christian church, uh, it does so in very idealistic terms. The church grew in part because it took care of people's basic needs. Acts concludes with the Apostle Paul preaching in Rome, the very heart of the empire. When I was young, I belonged to a local church that was Pentecostal. This story was super important there. Pentecostalism arose in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and in addition to baptism by water, Pentecostals practice a second baptism called baptism in the Holy Spirit, which is performed by the laying on of hands. The sign that it has succeeded is that a person begins to speak in a prayer language known only to God and to those who have the spiritual gift of interpretation. Nowadays, when I look at this story, I'm a lot less interested in what the apostles are saying than in what the listeners are hearing. The point here is not that the apostles are speaking words that only God can understand. Instead, the Spirit is reaching out to each person, meeting them where they are, and communicating something powerful to them in their own languages. The disciples became transparent channels. They got out of their own way so the Spirit could do its work of bringing people together in peace and harmony. In my work as a hospice chaplain, the essence of the job is to show up and then get out of the Spirit's way so it can do its work in people's lives. A lot of times when people have been burned by toxic religion or by people trying to impose beliefs and force conversions, the word chaplain can sound very scary. 
Even the softer title, spiritual care counselor, might sound alarming. But my role in that situation is not to talk people into or out of anything. Well, that's not exactly true. I do encourage people to practice love and gratitude because that is the best way I know to prepare for a peaceful death. But basically, my role is to support people in whatever way makes most sense to them. Which brings me back to Marcus Borg and his discussion of thin places. For those who haven't read the book, Borg distinguishes between two radically different ways of understanding the meaning of Christian traditions and the contours of a Christian life. What he calls the earlier paradigm is, um, is actually only a few hundred years old. It's a Christian reaction against the challenges of modernity in response to changes brought about by science, evolving views of gender and sexuality, and religious diversity, the earlier paradigm pushes back against these. It insists on the Bible as a uniquely divine product, interprets the text literally, though selectively, and emphasizes the subordination of women in one of two acceptable gender roles. When scientific discoveries undermine a literal reading of biblical text, this version doubles down on a pre-scientific worldview. Miracle stories are understood to be not just metaphorically, but factually true. And you must believe certain things to enter heaven when you die. Heaven is what matters. The emerging paradigm, which Borg spends the rest of the book discussing, sees the Bible instead as reflecting human efforts to understand God rather than a divine revelation to humans. It interprets Bible texts by considering the historical circumstances in which they were written, and it sees miracle stories as metaphorical. In this view, Christianity involves transformation in this life through a relationship with God. The Pentecostal church I mentioned earlier reflected the earlier paradigm. Crosswalk reflects the emerging one. Borg goes on to talk about his understanding of the meanings of Bible, God, Jesus, being born again, and the kingdom of God. In future chapters, he'll talk about sin and salvation, Christian practice, and Christianity in the context of religious diversity. So in chapter eight, Borg is talking about the thin places experiences that open our hearts to mystery, wonder, and connection. When our hearts are closed, he says, we are insensitive to those things. We have eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear. We lack gratitude, compassion, and a commitment to justice. Closed hearts make us small-minded. We feel separate alienated from neighbors who are not like ourselves. A closed heart produces what Buddhism calls the three poisons, greed, hatred, and ignorance. Borg says, when our hearts are closed, we live within a shell. The shell needs to be broken open if the life within it is to enter into full life. And if the heart is not hatched, we die. There's a Zen story in which the process of spiritual awakening compares a spiritual teacher to a hen pecking 
on a mature egg shell from the outside and a chick pecking from the inside so that the, together they help the new life emerge. So in thin places, spirituality, excuse me, spiritual reality seems to break through to ordinary reality such that our hearts are opened and we feel truly alive. The Pentecost event was a very dramatic example, but lots of things can produce this effect. As Dar mentioned, Pete and his family are in Yosemite this weekend. Uh, Brian, I think you just came back from the Grand Canyon. Was that a thin place for you? I bet it was. Yeah, yeah uh, stunning, places of stunning grandeur. Um, and they certainly evoke wonder and awe. Music, poetry, literature, visual arts, theater, and dance can all be thin places. Even people can be these thin places. Jesus was one, the Buddha, Muhammad, Guru Nanak, Moses, Baha'u'llah, I would include the 14th Dalai Lama. Some spiritual teachers have been described as so transparent to divine light that others couldn't even look at them directly. Jesus during his transformation, Moses when he came down off of Sinai. Moments of crisis can be thin places when we are seriously ill, incarcerated, suffering, or grieving. Experience a birth, experiencing a birth or facing one's own death or that of a loved one. One of the reasons I love what I do is that I get the honor and privilege of accompanying people through these moments. I hear stories all the time about events that might not make sense in terms of kind of a scientific worldview, but that seem very clearly uh, to those who experience them to be messages from beyond. I've experienced such moments myself, and I bet many of you um, have stories like that. So how do we become more transparent? How do we become a thin place? Borg points to a number of Christian practices that can help people experience thin places, like making pilgrimage, or joining in collective worship, participating in Christian sacraments, service to others. Yet I also want to question the dualism of imagining that the realm of the spirit is somehow separate from our ordinary reality, and that for a moment they intersect. I want to question that some sort of boundary separates them, uh, and that this boundary becomes thin uh, like a veil and then drops away for an instant. I want to suggest instead, and this is the most important thing I hope you'll take away this morning, that the spirit realm and conventional reality are actually the same place. And what changes in a thin place is not reality itself, but our perception. It's not that the divine breaks through, but that we let go of whatever stands in our way of experiencing our connection to the divine, which is always already present. The planet is always preaching the power of life-affirming love. And that is the best description of God I've ever found, the power 
of life-affirming love. It's visible in the way that plants turn toward the sun and the way animals care for their young. It's all around us and inside us and between us if we pay attention. Borg quotes the Trappist monk Thomas Merton, we are living in a world that is absolutely transparent and God is shining through it all the time. When we get over our small selves and abandon ourselves to God, Merton says, God is revealed everywhere, in everything. My friend James Ford, who is both a Zen teacher and a Unitarian Universalist minister, has this tagline at the end of his email signature. There is another world, and it is this one. In Zen training, there is no distinction between supposedly religious activities like meditation or performing liturgies and the seemingly ordinary activities of sitting, walking, bathing, cleaning, and cooking. Ordinary activity is sacred activity if we recognize and treat it as such, if we give it our undivided attention. When we do so, we can become a thin place. I could tell you lots of stories from my hospice work, but I'm just gonna offer one uh, recent encounter I had with a person who has advanced dementia uh, and is mostly nonverbal. That was a thin place for me. I found her sitting in the dining room of a memory care facility playing with the remains of her lunch. She had a broccoli floret and she was dipping it in a bowl of sauce with her hand and then wringing the sauce out and then dipping it again and then wringing it out and dipping it again. <clears throat> um, and she was a little wary of me, a stranger, when I sat down nearby. After a while, I looked around for a napkin to offer her and she tilted her head in the direction uh, where I could find some. I handed her one and she wiped her fingers. I handed her another one and she folded some of her food into it. I handed a third one and she held it up to her face, mimicking the mask that I was wearing. She rolled her eyes and played peekaboo. I followed suit with a napkin of my own. She put her hand on, my head, on her head and I followed her. She made some silly faces, and I joined her. She started laughing. It was clear that this person still had a sense of humor and a spirit of playfulness, even though she could no longer speak. We made a connection that delighted us both. That is the power of life-affirming love. I was able to experience that, I think, because I've engaged for many years in two kinds of training. The first is Zen training, which involves bringing your entire body and mind to a situation with undivided attention, and when the mind wanders, as it does, bringing it back over and over again. That helped me to let go of any assumption I might have held about a person in memory care so that I could just meet the person in front of me on her terms. The second kind of training that has helped me uh, is called interplay, which is a group creative practice grounded in improvisation and play. So I'm gonna pause for a commercial break here. Um, in June, I will be offering a free introduction to interplay after the service, after a service, and everyone is welcome. 
One of the practices that we do in interplay uh, is following and leading. So I followed the patient where she went without trying to you know, make her go where I might have wanted, and so we connected. Another thing that I had to let go of was my desire not to look silly in front of the staff. Uh, <clears throat> I, know a pastor, I have a pastor friend who says, I'm a fool for Jesus and I wish I were more so, which is about letting go of attachment to what other people think of you in order to live the power of life-enhancing love. I was talking about all of this with a Christian friend who said, you know, I don't always know what I'm holding on to that I need to drop in order to let the spirit move. How do I, how do I see it? One answer is to have good spiritual friends with whom we can discuss our spiritual life in a really honest way and who can give us wise and compassionate feedback about places where we're stuck. Other helpful practices include journaling or making art because they reveal things that might otherwise stay hidden inside of us. Improvisation does the same thing. Paying attention to dreams is something that my Christian friends does. Uh, one of the practices that both Borg and I recommend is the practice of inner stillness and silence. I'm sorry to say this, friends, but most y'all Protestants are not great at that. When one is busy talking and doing, it is easy to lose track of the still, small voice that can only be heard in silence. Many years of silently observing my own habits of mind has made me better able to notice when I'm clinging to things guaranteed to keep me separate, like resentment or envy or ill will. I certainly don't do this perfectly, but I've gotten better with practice. Most Sunday mornings, I attend the local Quaker meeting where worship consists of 45 minutes of silent, expectant waiting. That's it. Quakers believe that the divine is present in everyone and the spirit can speak through anyone. Sometimes a person does feel moved during silent worship to say something, but not always. When anyone does speak, what they say is followed by extended silence so that everyone has time to let the words sink in and to reflect on them. It is very, very simple, but very, very powerful. So before I close this morning, I want to offer you an experience of a Christian practice that I, that I often experience as a thin place. It comes from a Christian community in France called Taze. Anybody familiar with Taze? I see one in two hands. Okay, three, four, five, just a few of you. So their style of worship is to sing melodic, repetitive chants, followed by periods of silence and some short readings. Uh, the Episcopal Church on 3rd Street, St. Mary's, holds a Taze service on the Wednesday of Holy Week every year. So um, I would like to invite you now to set aside for just a few moments whatever else is on your mind or on your phone and, uh, and, and just give yourself to the chant that I'm going to play with you. Uh, so the Latin phrase, uh, the Latin phrase that's chant is Veni Sancte Spiritus, Veni Sancte Spiritus, come Holy Spirit. You're welcome to join in if you feel so moved. This chant will be followed by a couple of minutes of silence, 
during which you can just enjoy your breathing. Uh, I urge you not to reach for your phone. I will close with a blessing that a Jewish colleague shared for Shavuot, inspired by the poet E.E. E. Cummings. So, please feel free to join this chant.
May the ears of our ears awake. Now may the eyes of our eyes be opened. And now may the hearts of our hearts be as one. Thank you, crosswalkers. Go be Jesus.